Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And then we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. The reading for today comes from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 11. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prisons. Oops, sorry. And the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness. Sorry. Oh gosh. the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former, former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall, shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprout, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Carolina. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Ian. I've had the chance to meet you. I have the privilege of being uh, one of the pastors here at the King's Church and excited to be back uh, preaching this morning after a few weeks off. Uh, always good for a preacher to get a few weeks off. Uh, just means that I have a lot to say today. So uh, buckle up. We'll see if we can get through it. But grateful to uh, Pastor Andrew and Pastor Pat for bringing the word uh, the last uh, couple of weeks. And as we continue on here through Isaiah, beginning to get near the end of the book, let me ask you this question this morning as we begin. Uh, are you experiencing joy right now? Are you experiencing joy right now in your life? Is that something that your life is marked by? I don't know if you heard it there in the passage, but Isaiah here is pointing us to a joy that is offered to each and every one of us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice it wasn't just a temporal joy. It wasn't a joy that's here one moment and kind of gone and fleeting the next. No, what kind of joy is it? Did you catch it? It's an everlasting joy. Do you want an everlasting joy? I know I do. I don't know about you. And certainly our world needs an everlasting joy right now, doesn't it? 
I mean, it's a dark, gloomy place out there. But here, we are given an offer of everlasting joy. And I think that mark of joy is a mark of an authentic faith in Jesus. Now, in order to get to that everlasting joy, as that theme is going to develop, there's another theme that runs alongside it in this passage. And that theme has to do with clothing. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world does clothing have to do with joy? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I get that. Others are like, no, not seeing that, right? But let's think about clothing for a minute. When's the last time you really thought about clothes, right? For some of you, uh, it took you a little while to get to church today. It was a little colder. I threw the sweater on today, right? Took an extra, extra little piece to iron. Uh, for some of you, it took you about, I don't know, 15 seconds to get dressed, right? No plan ahead of time. You just, you got up, you grabbed the first shirt, right? You grabbed the first pants or shorts. Here you are. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But clothes are just part of our normal everyday life. But think about what clothes represent. First of all, they uh, deal with our identity, right? They associate or disassociate us with particular groups. For example, you will not catch me alive wearing orange and blue together. Like, that is just not an association I want. Uh, I'm not sure you want it right now, right, to be honest. We all watched what happened yesterday, okay. Uh, you'll find me a lot in some garnet and gold, but orange and blue, it's a little bit of a clash for me. Uh, clothes have an association. They deal with our identity. Clothes also prepare us for our vocations or whatever our daily life looks like. Right? My wife is a nurse at the hospital, and she basically wears pajamas to work every day. Right? They're scrubs. They look super comfy. They're going into messy situations. Don't hear me wrong. Right? But at least they're comfortable as they're doing so. Uh, firemen need to make sure they have proper clothing on if they're going to do their job properly. Uh, you don't ever want to be the one who is way overdressed or the one who's way underdressed, right, in whatever circumstance you might find yourself in. Uh, clothes deal with our everyday life. But it's interesting in the scriptures, clothes often reveal character. Clothes often reveal character. You ever notice in the Bible, and I, I noticed this this week when somebody pointed it out, that the Bible talks a lot about what people are wearing, whether it be the story of David and Goliath, read that story, there's a lot of clothing talk going on. Uh, John the Baptist, right, one of the first things you might think about when you hear John the Baptist is the description of what he wore. Uh, Adam and Eve, all the way back in the beginning, there's a lot of conversation around clothing, isn't there? And then if you think it's just a kind of theme here and there, not only does it begin in Genesis, but in Revelation, the clothing of Jesus himself becomes a significant theme. You see, the Bible makes a big deal about clothing, and there's a connection between our clothing and our joy that we're going to see today. Okay, here's what we're going to see in this passage. Jesus clothes us in the gospel with things that are not our own so that we might become a people that are full of everlasting joy. Okay, here's, here's our main idea. Here's another way to say that. Jesus proclaims the gospel of salvation. He transforms his people and then he clothes us in garments of joy and praise. So if you are like me this morning and you want a joy that is everlasting, that transcends your circumstances, that is not temporal, but has a stick to itness, I think there's a word for us this morning from this chapter. But before we jump in, let's, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to gather here as brothers and sisters citizens and saints in the household of God. And I pray this morning as we look at this passage that points us to uh, the truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus himself, uh, that it would draw us into this life of joy, into a greater worship of you 
and into a, a life that, that puts on Christ, just like we put on clothing. So Holy Spirit, may you give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and the hearts to respond afresh to the good news of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, as we walk through all of Isaiah 61, we're going to look at the salvation of the gospel in the first few verses, then the transformation of the gospel in the middle, and then we'll conclude by coming back to that clothing theme and talk about the garments of the gospel. All right, so here in Isaiah 61, the promised anointed Messiah of the Lord seems to be speaking through the prophet Isaiah. There's a first person used here that seems to transcend Isaiah himself. Now, Isaiah is given a rich, glorious picture of the future, the future that Pastor Pat unpacked for us last week from Isaiah chapter 60. But Isaiah 61 is telling us how that bright future for God's people will be accomplished through the work of this Messiah. And we know that this passage is pointing us to the ministry of Jesus himself. Now, all passages are meant to point us to Jesus. He himself read the Bible that way. But some are a little easier than others. Here's why we know that this is talking about Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, you can look at it, beginning in verse 16, Jesus, uh, in his very first public ministry, quotes this chapter in Isaiah and says that he has come to fulfill it. So we are in good Uh, company and ground here to go ahead and say that this is talking about Jesus. He himself applied it to his work and his ministry. Now, I think it's a significant point that Jesus starts his ministry with Isaiah 61. Think about it this way. Uh, Politicians often make a big deal about their campaign kickoff, don't they? And these speeches that might come with that. These speeches are often defining They come at the perfect time that all the strategists kind of figured out, engaged, that now is the time to announce you're running for whatever it is you're running. They announce the kind of vision that you want to see realized under your leadership and administration. They set the trajectory for the future of what you want to see accomplished. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus, in his hometown, a fitting place to kick off a campaign, isn't it? The strategists love that. In his hometown in Nazareth, went into a synagogue on the Sabbath, he stood up, he grabbed the scroll of Isaiah, and he opened it up right here to this place. And friends, this is Jesus' mission statement. This is what he came to proclaim and to accomplish in and through his life and his death and his resurrection. This is his campaign kickoff. So let's go back and read that again with some of that context in mind. Look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Ray Ortland has rightly said that these two verses give us the seven infinitives of all that it means for God to save us. I love that. I think that's accurate. This is a picture of total salvation here. Nothing is left out. Nothing is lacking in what these verses describe as the mission of the anointed Messiah. And notice here, there's both proclamation and action taking place. This Messiah would both declare and display the good news of the gospel. 
But as he comes and does this, I want us to pay particular attention to the recipients, the intended audience of this Messiah's work. Who has he been sent to? Well, the text tells us that he has been sent and that he moves toward the poor, that he has a heart for the afflicted. He comes and heals those who are brokenhearted. Which one of us hasn't been brokenhearted at some point in time? He goes toward the captives, literally those who are in exile, and goes to free those who are in prison. And he moves and has compassion toward all who mourn. All who mourn, all who have sorrows, all who bear burdens. You see, Jesus' ministry is aimed precisely toward people who are in trouble. And they know they're in trouble. His attention is on those who are stuck in bondage, whose hearts are broken and disappointed to the lowly and the downtrodden. He comes to those who don't have it all together and they know they don't have it all together. That is the anointed one of the Lord who he comes to. And brothers and sisters, if you can't find yourself somewhere in those recipients, you will miss the good news of the gospel and you will miss the everlasting joy that is offered in Christ. You see, the people in Nazareth, when they heard him read this scroll, and he says that he's bringing all of this to fulfillment, they acted entitled and they scoffed. Jesus later makes it clear, it's not the healthy I've come for, but the sick. I came not to save the righteous in and of themselves, but to save sinners. I love how Charles Spurgeon reflects on this. Uh, Hear this and identify with this, because I think this is, this is something that's meant to draw our hearts into the beauty of the gospel. Spurgeon says this, Jesus did not come into the world to exalt those who are high, to give greater power to the strong, or to clothe those who are already clad in their own righteousness. No, the Spirit of God was upon him that he might preach good tidings to the meek, that broken hearts should be bound up, captives redeemed and prisoners released. This ought to be the very great subject of thanksgiving to those who are heavy of heart. Is it not sweet to think that the anointed of the Lord came for your sakes, that you whose eyelids are fringed with beaded tears, you whose songs are dirges, you who dwell at death's door may be brought forth into sunlight. That is the salvation of the gospel. Jesus comes to a weak and weary people, and he's inviting them to himself and to something greater. And notice here, this is a total salvation in that all sorts of circumstances are described. He doesn't just come and deal with our spiritual and emotional needs. He also mentions here that there is a physical, socioeconomic realities that are at play. And the promise here is that Jesus is coming to mend all that has gone wrong. Jesus cares both about the physical and the spiritual because sin has infiltrated all of it. And Jesus will overthrow and win the victory over every single thing that stands against. And to fully appreciate this, we need to look at a phrase we might not realize what Jesus is hinting at. In verse 2, it says that he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that sounds pretty awesome, right? Like, sign me up for that. The Lord's blessing a whole year. I want to be in that blessing, doesn't it? 
but it also sounds kind of generic. But here's the thing, when the original hearers would have heard Jesus say, the year of the Lord's favor, some alarm bells would have come off in their minds. You see, back in Leviticus, if you want to read some Leviticus this week, in case you're bored, okay, hop back to Leviticus 25, fun little chapter that's there. In Leviticus 25, it talks about the institution of the year of Jubilee. And here's how this worked. Every week in the Israelite calendar, every seventh day was the Sabbath day to the Lord. It was a day of rest and worship. But then every seven years in their calendar was a Sabbath year. The land would rest. They would not farm it. Debts were forgiven. Slaves were freed. But then, every seventh cycle of seven years, every 50th year, that was the year of Jubilee. Not only in the year of Jubilee were all debts forgiven, not only were all slaves freed, but the land itself went back to its original family allotments, no matter who held possession of it at that time. The flavor of that year was to be generous and kind to everyone, to proclaim liberty in the land, is what Leviticus says. Now, as good capitalists here in America in this room, that makes us a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? And in fact, it might have made Israel uncomfortable because there's no history or no records that they actually practiced it. But think about what that means. As the years go by between the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, inevitably, some people do a little better, some people do a little worse, for whatever the reason. Circumstances, poor choices, hard work, natural disasters, illness, whatever might have happened. People varying levels of success on that. But every 50 years was a fresh start. All things were made new, so to speak. There was a reset. This meant, think about it, on average, that every single person in every family had a once-in-a-lifetime chance to start fresh, no matter what had happened before that. And the principle behind this is that it all belongs to the Lord anyways. He graciously give, gave them the land, and so therefore he, he, as the owner, deems it be returned in this way. Now, with that backdrop, think about the words of Jesus again. Jesus says, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I have come to bring the jubilee. Jesus comes as the substance of what was a shadow in the Old Testament law. The ministry of Christ is the fulfillment of that kind of radical liberation, that kind of immense kindness, and that kind of immense restoration. The ministry of Christ comes, and it's an invitation for us to leave behind whatever's happened in the past and to receive from his hand freedom and a fresh start. It's the mission of Christ. That's the salvation of the gospel being offered. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That kind of freedom is available. So, friends, this morning, that is offered to each and every one of you here in this room. That is offered to all who might come to Christ. But those who hear it are those who identify with the poor, with the afflicted, with the brokenhearted, with those who know they don't have it all together. So if that's you this morning, I have good news. You're surrounded by people that's also true of. Welcome to the party. But here's the better news. Jesus is inviting you to himself. 
He's inviting you to jubilee. So I would urge you, run to him. But here's the beautiful thing. As the scriptures say, he who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. Jesus doesn't just offer us the salvation of the gospel and then toss us the keys to our lives and say, all right, good luck, you take it from here. We might think, ah, that's a little silly, but how many of us carry around a burden on a daily basis that assumes the Christian life is up to us? How many of us think, man, it's great that Jesus got me in the door. I'm so glad I put my faith in him and he saved me, but now I need to make sure I keep this thing going. I need to do fill in the blank for you. But here's the good news. The gospel not only saves us, brothers and sisters, it transforms us. Now, there is more here in this middle section than we have time for, so here's what I want to do. I want to anchor verses 3 through 9 around one word. One word shows up five times in verses 3 through 9. Did you catch what the word is? Over and over again, the word instead shows up. Now, think about instead for a minute. Instead means a radical difference. It's not a slight adjustment. It's not a, you take what you've got going on and let me sprinkle something new on it. No, it means in exchange. So the holidays are coming up here quickly, right? And I just want to note as your pastor, I've seen that some of you have continued on with your annual uh, ignoring of Thanksgiving. You've skipped ahead to Christmas. Listen, it's a, it's a feast. We get to celebrate and eat a ton of food together with thankful hearts. What is more Christian than that, right? So it's fine. If you've got your Christmas tree, your Christmas lights up, that's fine. Just remember we got Thanksgiving still, okay? I'll leave that alone. Now, when we think about holidays, think about shopping, right? We think about gift-giving. Uh, occasionally, you will receive a gift that you're, you're grateful for, but it might not be, you know, exactly what you're looking for. And some of us have friends or family, and these are dear friends and family, right? They, they give you that gift. Like, they've made an attempt. Like, hey, here you go. Here's what I think you might want for Christmas. But then they also include the glorious gift receipt, right? Now, it's kind of, you don't go back and, and tell them you're using the gift receipt, but they provided it, right? So you're like, okay, well, if I don't really want this, or eh, this is okay, but I really want that thing, what can you do? You go back to the store, you give them what you don't want, you show that glorious gift receipt, and you exchange it for something that you do want, right? I remember when my wife and I got married, uh, someone bought us fine wedding china, and I apologize for service, I'll do it again. If whoever bought us that is watching or here, I'm sorry. Uh, but we were 23 and 21 years old. We had a small little apartment. We could host four people. We were not going to use fine china. But you know what we could use was cash. So we took that fine china back to Bed Bath & Beyond, and they gave us cash, which was a glorious thing. We exchanged what we did not need for what we needed. This kind of instead, this kind of exchange is offered to us in the gospel. Let's look at these five instead. Let's look at verse 3. It says, To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The first instead is ashes for a beautiful headdress. Now, ashes symbolize death. This is the heart behind Ash Wednesday, if you're familiar with that practice, that kicks off the Lent season where you put ash on your forehead. 
Quite frankly, Ash Wednesday is a little too cleaned up. In ancient cultures, when disaster would come upon them, they wouldn't just put ashes on their forehead. They would dump a bucket of ashes all over their head. It was a sign of mourning and humiliation. And it served as a reminder of what was said all the way back in Genesis 3. From dust you have come, and to dust you will return. So you pour ashes on your head, and you look dirty and disheveled, and it's meant to communicate this is what life is like. I mean, think about how ashes are created to begin with. It's what is left after the destruction, after the fire, after the breakdown. It is charred remnants and burned out debris. And brothers and sisters, doesn't, doesn't our lives sometimes feel like charred remnants and burned out debris? And the Lord takes those ashes and instead of them, he gives us a beautiful headdress. It's the picture of a garland fashioned out of green leaves and beautiful flowers. It symbolizes vibrancy and vitality and beauty and life. And it was placed on the head, instead of ashes, a garland to represent victory, some joyous accomplishment. The ancient Olympic Games, they would crown someone with this headdress. And in the gospel, Jesus takes the ashes of our life and the death of this world, and he brings beauty and life out of it. The promise of the transformation of the gospel is to take what is burned over and just burnt out debris and to bring life from that, instead of ashes, a headdress. Secondly, instead of mourning, an oil of gladness. When you're mourning and crying, your face and your skin, they become impacted. They dry out, they crack, it can become physically painful. But oil was used in times of celebration and plenty. It represented joy and a bountiful blessing from the Lord. This is what Psalm 23 says. Right, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows because of your blessing. Instead of a life of mourning and suffering that has the final word, the gospel instead gives us an overflowing blessing, oil of gladness from the Lord himself. So instead of ashes, we get a headdress. Instead of Morning, we get an oil of gladness, and then instead of a faint spirit, we are given a garment of praise. Faint spirit is the same word as the faintly burning wick we looked at in Isaiah 42. The one that the servant will fan back into flame and not snuff out. It's the picture of barely hanging on. It's when you have grown so weary that you do not even want to get out of bed for whatever your day is about to look like. But the gospel, instead of a faint spirit, gives us a garment of praise. This garment is a picture of a wrap or a cloak that comes around your entire person. When it gets cold outside for like those three days in Florida, right, you have that one jacket or that one blanket or that nice robe that just wraps around you and warms you up. That's the idea here. We are wrapped up in praise. Our hearts are warmed to the Lord and our spirits are strengthened. Instead of a faint spirit, we're given a garment of praise. Now those three things all symbolize an exterior reality that is meant to show us something that's happening on the inside. 
And that inner reality is what these final two exchanges, the final two insteads, drill deeper into. Look at verse 5 and following. It says, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. So fourthly, instead of shame, a double portion is given. Shame is more than just being embarrassed. Shame is when every hope you had is stripped from you, and you're left empty-handed with nothing. You've been made an example of, you have nothing to stabilize you. Maybe you've had that kind of experience with shame in your life. The Israelites, who heard this, certainly did. They lived through the ignoring of warnings from the prophets and from the Lord himself, which led to the destruction of their city, the burning down of their temple, and an exile where they were carried away, removed from their history, their culture, and their identity markers in Babylon. That was a shameful experience. But the promise here is that instead of your shame, you are given a double portion. The Hebrew literally just says you're given a double. So what is that double? What it is, is it's the complete reversal of our shame. You see, this double portion doesn't just cover what you've done, doesn't just forgive the wrongs that are there or mend the the shameful thing that you're feeling. It is a complete reversal restoration. It restores you to a place of honor. I mean, no longer will they be shameful exiles. Verse 6 says they will be priests of the Lord. They will be ministers of our God. Not only is their shame removed, they are put into a place of honor. And the gospel, brothers and sisters, does that for you and I as well. And then lastly, instead of dishonor, what is given is joy. Rejoicing with everlasting joy, instead of being made an example of, instead of people mocking, real, lasting joy is offered in the gospel. And I think this is the kind of apologetic or defense that Christians need in the midst of the world we find ourselves in right now. I mean, Christians who live with a real joy, a real hope, no matter what life throws at them, no matter what circumstances, no matter what hardships come our way, that demands a response, doesn't it? Now, don't hear me wrongly. This joy does not mean that we do not feel the sting of suffering and death. It doesn't mean that we don't feel the hardships of walking through life in a broken, jacked up, fallen world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. Of course we feel those things. Being joyful does not mean being naively optimistic. We are not pie in the sky, well, everything's fine kind of Christians. No, the the gospel does transform us into the kind of people who, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sorrows, have an unshakable joy because it comes from a source outside of ourselves. We can't conjure that up. 
But the gospel transforms us into people who have a joy that is unshakable. This is the kind of joy Peter talks about in his letter. In 1 Peter 1, a long section on suffering, by the way. He gets to the end of suffering in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You rejoice with a joy that you can't even put words to. Everlasting joy. That's what's offered in the gospel. Listen, brothers and sisters, the gospel is a message of a great instead. Jesus is offering each one of us, I will take what you have and exchange it for what I have. And what he's offering us is not just an entrance, but a completely transformed life. Now, to fully appreciate that, there's one instead in this passage I think we might miss. We have to go back up in the text to see that. It's not explicit, but I think it'll make sense as we look at this. If you go to Luke 4 and you read when Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, he cuts off the quotation a little early. It's interesting. He stands up, he quotes through verse 1, then he gets to verse 2 and he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he stops. And he says, this has been fulfilled, and he sits down. But notice, he stops short of saying, and the day of vengeance of our God. So what's going on there? I don't think it's a coincidence. See, Jesus has come in his first coming to fulfill what's going on here in Isaiah 61. And he will fulfill all of what's in this chapter, but not at the same time. You see, in his first coming, he comes to proclaim the year of Jubilee, that it is now here. But his second coming will be the day of the Lord. The prophets talk about the day of the Lord we're reading about in our community Bible reading right now. But here's the other instead I want us to see. Jesus in that moment had not yet fulfilled the day of the Lord because that was coming on a cross. You see, the ultimate instead of the gospel, the ultimate exchange would be seen not in that synagogue in that moment, but on a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem a few years later. Because on that cross, Jesus shows us the ultimate picture of hope and the ultimate picture of transformation, but it only comes through an instead. Our sins, our shame, all that we've done wrong, Jesus takes upon himself. And instead, you know what you and I get? His perfect record, his righteousness, forgiveness, and new life. He did this in order to offer us an exchange. He bore our sins on that tree so we might receive his righteousness. So listen, friends, if your life is marked by ashes, by mourning, by a faint spirit, if you feel the weight of shame and dishonor, I urge you to look to the cross of Christ where he takes all of that upon himself and instead offers us a fresh start new life, all sorts of insteads. If we want that transformed life, we have to go there. But quickly and lastly, let's talk about that clothing thing again, the garments of the gospel. Look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, 
and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This chapter ends with the Messiah praising the Lord for his accomplished work. But notice, the Messiah here is clothed as a groom on his wedding day. He is wearing the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness, and that headdress once more appears, which has replaced ashes. He is experiencing the joy of a wedding celebration. He is delighting over the people he has redeemed, just like a groom would delight over a bride on his wedding day. And we know that this image is not just a one-off here in Isaiah. This is an image that runs all the way through the scriptures. When we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says marriage is a great mystery, a mega mystery. Amen? But the mystery is this. It points to Christ and the church, his bride. And this is where I want us to think about our clothes again. You see, in our culture... It's a really big deal when the bride picks out her dress for the wedding, isn't it? I mean, that is the Instagram moment, right? You got the bride, you got the bridesmaid, the family is right. I said yes to the dress, right? Big deal, awesome thing. Absolutely nothing wrong with that, just what our culture does. In ancient cultures, though, the custom was a little different. Just listen to this description of what goes on around an ancient wedding. The groom would provide the wedding gown or dress for his bride. And then when the actual wedding came about, this would have quite the buildup. It was a week-long affair. The groom would celebrate in one place with his friends and family. The bride would celebrate in her place with her friends and family. And then after that week of celebration and lead-up was, was done and it's time for the wedding ceremony, the bride would have a little parade. Her family and her friends would lead her from her home her parents' home, to the home of the groom. And she would walk wearing that dress that was provided for her. The people in that town would look on at this little parade and walk. They would see her wearing the garment as she's dressed for the occasion. They would cheer her on and give them well wishes as they went. She was dressed for the occasion in a gown provided by her groom. And friends, what I want us to close with today is that that picture is the gospel. That picture is the gospel. Christ, as our groom, has clothed us in his righteousness alone, as we sang about. He has wrapped around us a garment of praise and righteousness. And we right now are awaiting the marriage supper of lamb that is in the future. We are walking that parade, so to speak clothed with the garments from another, and people are looking at us, and we have the opportunity to put on Christ, to put on that garment of praise, and to point people to the groom. This is how Revelation 19 describes it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, 
and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, the transformed life as we live it in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we await that day. We await the marriage supper of the Lamb. And until that day comes, you and I are invited every single day to put off the old self and to put on Christ. Just as we would get dressed for the day, we get dressed with Jesus' garments that he has given to us. And as we walk one step in front of the other, awaiting the marriage supper that, that is coming in the future, we live with an everlasting joy. Because though we were undeserving, we have been given the instead of the gospel. And that is a reason for joy. So friends, do you have that joy? If you don't, run to the one who can clothe you in it for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of the contents of the good news of salvation. We thank you for the promise of transformation. And we thank you that you've given us all that we need to put on Christ in our day-to-day lives and to live as a people who long for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So help us live faithfully in that. Holy Spirit, draw us to greater faith and repentance and worship and obedience in you. Help us to treasure the great insteads of the gospel, the great exchange, uh, you in our place, so that we might live as a free people and as a people of jubilee. Lord, may you cause that to happen in our midst, and may that be a witness to a weary and broken world around us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.